Behold your king and savior. We've entitled the message today. Today is typically known as Palm Sunday, or also commonly known as the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Before this event in Matthew chapter 21, a number of things had taken place. Over about or approximately 30 years prior to this, a couple of major events had taken place on earth. Number one, the birth of Jesus Christ. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ came in as the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. He came into this world the Savior. Then, after that event, he seems to disappear in a relatively quiet life. There's very few details that are given to us about what went on during those 30 years or so of the Lord's life. But as we progress toward this passage in chapter 21, over approximately the past three years prior to this event, some other significant events have taken place surrounding this person, Jesus of, or from Nazareth, as it says in verse 11, in Galilee. He had been baptized. He had been baptized by John the Baptist, and from heaven, God announced that this was his beloved son. His transfiguration had happened by this time, in which a couple of the disciples had witnessed the change that took place with the Lord Jesus Christ. But over and above that, what was witnessed by many, many people, leaders, Followers, disciples, as well as unbelievers were countless miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ had performed. He had spent a lot of time instructing his apostles by now. He had spent a lot of time instructing the multitudes, for example, by the seashore in his sermons as they are referred to. He had fed thousands of people with sustenance for this world. All of this had been taking place in the last three years. So it was fresh in their mind. Recently, before entering in, according to chapter 20 and verse 29, and I want you to notice that leading into chapter 21, he had healed two blind men in Jericho. And as he healed blind men, these two blind men, there were crowds that were beginning to follow him again. Also, and I won't turn you there right now, but recently he had just raised Lazarus from the dead, according to John chapter 11. That was just prior to what we have coming in here. Remember, he's going to his death and there's a resurrection coming that we will celebrate, Lord willing, next Sunday. He had just demonstrated his power over death. And the people and the crowds and the leaders and his own followers had witnessed this just in the recent past of the power of the Messiah. And it tells us in that passage in John chapter 11 that there was a large crowd again that was there that were able to witness as he called on his father for the benefit of the crowd. Then, I'd like you to turn, keep your finger here for just one second, go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 for just a moment. In uh, John chapter 12, as he has come out of Jericho, and as he has raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, in chapter 12 it says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came 
to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So that had just happened, and now he spent time and had a dinner in Bethany. He had spent there some time and had a meal. And I want you to notice verse 9, because you come to verse 9, and a large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom had been raised for the dead. And then the chief priests are going to plan to kill Lazarus and the Lord Jesus Christ that we learn. And you'll notice in John's passage, the very next thing, in verse 12, it says, on the next day, and we enter into the triumphant entry. So leading up to this event has been very significant things, especially in the past approximately three years that has been witnessed throughout the countryside and the world about this man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the crowds have been building. And he has made his way from Jericho. And he has come through Bethany. <coughs> and he is healed. And he is raised from the dead. And this crowd and multitudes are, are following him. And now we go back to Matthew chapter 21. And we find with all of this recent activity and tremendous victories and tremendous display of the power of God, we find in verse 1 of chapter 21 that Jesus is now approaching Jerusalem. He is now coming up to Jerusalem and preparing for his final week on earth with his first coming. He is coming to the climax of what his father's will is. He has been fulfilling and interested in only fulfilling all that the father had for him. And he is now coming to the end of it. He's now coming to the climax and he is coming to them as a lamb to the slaughter. The scriptures tell us. He is coming to them as one who has known no sin. He is coming to them as the Messiah, the anointed of God. He is coming up to Jerusalem and coming to them as indeed, as Matthew's gospel started, <coughs> pardon me, as the son of David and the son of Abraham. He is coming to Jerusalem as the good shepherd, the one who will lay down his life for the sheep. He is coming to them, the scriptures tell us, as the second Adam. He is coming to them, as John has revealed to us, as the one who is the creator of all and nothing has existed or will exist without him. He is coming to Jerusalem as the Son of God. He is coming to Jerusalem as the Savior of the world. He is coming to Jerusalem as the light of the world, as the bread of life as the resurrection and the life, as the way, the truth, and the life. He is coming as the door. Now those terms are things that we talk about as Christians all the time. But I want you to see the significance of this one. He's coming now up to Jerusalem and has been teaching and instructing and demonstrating who he is. And he's marching in. And the multitudes have built. Why is he coming to Jerusalem? Well, you've already said, Pastor Dan, is part of, in fact, the climax of the will of the Father. Yes. But I want you to notice why he's not coming. He is not coming to Jerusalem because of world war. 
He is not coming to Jerusalem, though he has healed many. He is not coming there because of disease. He is not coming to Jerusalem because of social injustice that was going on. He is not coming to Jerusalem because of the poverty that is in the world. He is not coming to Jerusalem because of the hunger and the destitute. He is not coming to Jerusalem out of concern for physical health, exercise, and dieting. He is not coming to Jerusalem out of concerns for the environmental concerns of the world that he was living in. He's coming for none of that. The things that we get concerned about all the time. But he is coming for the most serious need that is obvious to the Father and should be obvious to all of us. The obvious need he is coming because of sin. He is marching to Jerusalem to do the Father's will. He is coming with all of those titles because of sin. How long? Since the fall of man. Since the fall of man, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Man has disobeyed the instruction of God with all the liberty and freedom that he was given. There's one tree he couldn't touch, couldn't eat from, and he disobeyed. He is coming because of sin, examples of sin, hatred, murder, immorality, vengeance. Unforgiving spirits, jealousy, envy, pride, self-centeredness. Must I go on? Should I continue down my list? Any of those hit home with any of us? He is marching on to Jerusalem for his last week because of that. Well, what is the problem? It is the heart of man. It's our hearts. It's not even the outward. In Jeremiah, we know it well, Jeremiah 17, right? It is our heart that is deceitful. Our heart, my heart, your heart is deceitful above all things. Do you believe what I'm about to say? Our hearts are deceitful above all things else and desperately wicked we don't want to say that we don't want to think that but this one coming to Jerusalem is coming because our hearts are desperately wicked in Romans Paul said to try to describe it the things that I want to do I can't do the things that I know I shouldn't do, those are the things that I do. Oh, wicked man that I am. Is that the picture that we're getting from society? Is that the picture that the people of Jerusalem had? Is that the people as he marches in had of themselves? That as he's marching in that I am desperately wicked? Is that what our society is thinking of itself? In Matthew chapter 5, it says, Out of the heart come idolatry, immorality, hatred. And we can sit here in a church like this and say, Well, I never committed murder. Did you ever do it in your heart? I was never involved in immorality. You ever do it in your heart? I'm never involved in hatred. You never hated anybody in your heart? I never had an unforgiving spirit. You never had an unforgiving spirit in your heart? 
Never had pride in your heart? Self-centeredness in your life? It's all in the heart. That's the obvious need. He was marching up to Jerusalem because man needs a heart transplant. He was marching up to Jerusalem because man needs open heart surgery because of his condition. And there are none that escape it. Our society may laugh at it. We may think jokes about it. But all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And that is why he's marching up to Jerusalem. That is why that birth took place approximately 30 years before this event. Because God so loved the world that he sent, he gave his only begotten son. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And Almighty God took on flesh himself because there are none righteous and no one that has come equal on the level of God. We've all fallen short. God had to take the action. It wasn't the government that could intercede. It wasn't the environment that could change. You could change all the social programs and make everything perfect. And everybody in here, all wealthy, healthy, and wise. And it isn't going to change the heart. Man is wicked, self-centered. This world oriented, even as believers, we become so centered on this world and what we can get out of this world. And our treasures are not in heaven. So here he comes. King of kings. Lord of lords. Creator of all that exists. The anointed of God, the, in fact, deliverer of his people. And so let's look at his coronation. It's found in this passage. As we look at this triumphant entry, this Palm Sunday, this key event, he's about to be crowned king. We've already described who he really is. Now, pause for a moment and be realistic. What normally happens when you're going to coronate a king? I would say to us that there's going to be a lot of pomp. There's going to be a lot of ceremonies. There's going to be a lot of inviting key dignities, dignitaries that are to come from all over the world. Isn't that true? It's a big event. Soldiers. We just prayed for a soldier. <coughs> it's not a cold. My voice is dry. Excuse me. I don't know why I said that. But, <coughs> but soldiers dressed in their best attire. They're going to come out for this. Everyone that attends the event is going to go out and rent a tux or a gown and come out with the jewels and the best of their representation. Isn't that true? The music is going to be fantastic, the best of the world. And it's going to be such a memorable, spectacular event that all the world would know it took place. I don't want to put it on the same level, but I think you'll understand what I'm talking about. When a president comes into the United States, isn't that what happens? There's a big ball. Very recently, our president, as he came in for the second term, had two of them, two swearing-ins, two events, all of which was by invitation only, except for the crowds to stand out. And that was limited to the first whatever numbers it was. 
Most of us are aware right now what just happened. A new pope went into the Roman Catholic Church. Everybody's talking about it. It was a special ceremony. The gold came out. The special garments came out. Think of it. It's a coronation of a new person. When a king or a queen, when things happened in England, never mind the king or the queen, when it happens to their children, everybody in the world and the special uh, carrying, uh, what I want, carriages that come out, they're gold and they're specially done and people are dressed up in the, the greatest attire. Well, what about Jesus? This is King of Kings. This is the Creator. Have not men been saying since the creation of the world, oh, that I could see God. Oh, that I could really know Him. I, I would love to see God. I would love to just be able to talk to Him. I'd love to just be able to be with Him. And this is God in the flesh, marching up to Jerusalem. Oh, that we would worship him as God. Well, here he is. And what's it like for him? Pomp and ceremony? No. The preparation happens in verses 1 to 5. It sends disciples and says... Uh, Go get a donkey. Why? Well, it says right there, perfect fulfillment of scripture. Zechariah 9.9. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold your king. He's coming to you on a steed. He's coming to you dressed with pomp and ceremony. It's not what my Bible says. It's not what Zechariah said. He's coming to you gentle, mounted on a donkey. A donkey? What king has ever entered in on a donkey? Only one. The king of kings. Philippians chapter 2, you just read it in responsive reading. He came as a bond slave. The king of kings? Creator of the world? The Messiah? Son of God? Resurrection and life came as a bond slave. John chapter 13, he demonstrated to his own disciples that he came to serve, to wipe the disciples' feet, not to be served. And the procession starts. And as he comes, that multitude that we had just seen, the multitudes coming forth, and they're following him. Look at verse 9. And the crowds are going ahead of him. The crowds, he's marching up to Jerusalem. He's come down by the Mount of Olives, and he's marching into the city for his last week, headed to the cross, obviously. And what do we find with the people? We find them putting down their clothes. That was common when a dignitary came that they would put down their, their cloak. And it was an offering. If you would go back and trace a little bit of it, you'd find out that it was done because it was respect and honor, but also to show their submission. It was a way to show their submission. And they're laying down these coats like submission to this Jesus of Nazareth who's coming in. Others didn't have that, so they started to take branches down, and from the best that we can tell in studying, it was Palm Branches, which is how it became known as Palm Sunday. And there's more behind that in the history, and I won't bother with it, but they start taking the branches, and they put that down. It's kind of, you think of there was a puddle and so forth, so that the dignitary doesn't have to step in the puddle. Well, they're putting it down in submission. But more than that, I want you to notice again in verse 9, very significant. Here is his coronation. Here is his official recognition. And what is it? In fulfillment of scripture. They were shouting. They weren't whispering one to another. They're shouting it out loud so everybody can hear them. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
They're shouting it out, Hosanna, what? Save now. You know what it means. Save. We talked today. People need to get saved. I want to get saved. They're crying it out. Messiah is coming up. He's marching into Jerusalem. Save now. Save us. Son of David. They're recognizing something with that statement. Yes, it's fulfilling scripture, but they are crying out that he's the savior. They are crying out that he's the anointed of God. They're crying out that he's the Messiah. The crowds, the multitude, they're screaming it. The Messiah is here. He's the one that's coming in the name of Jehovah. This is him. The crowd's recognizing it. He's coming to his city. They've seen the miracles. They've seen all of that. It's been building up. They're following. He's sitting on a donkey. And they're marching him in. And they're crying and recognizing officially he is the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the one. He's the servant. The one of God. They wanted, listen, salvation. Listen. They wanted deliverance. But why? What type of salvation did they want? What type of deliverance did they want? Did they want salvation because they saw themselves as wicked, with a wicked heart, unworthy, deceitful above all, desperately wicked? Were they crying this out because they saw themselves and the condition of their heart as being godless? There are a lot of people crying out for salvation today and claiming salvation today. Are they crying out out of the desperation of their soul because of the wickedness that's there? Or are they crying out for salvation? The Son of God the Messiah for deliverance, for all those other things that I listed. A better life. Crying out for salvation because they want physical relief. Crying out for salvation because Christianity will give us a better world to live in. They were looking for deliverance from Rome. They were saying, save now, without even looking at their souls. They were saying, save me from Rome. Save me so I can have a better life. Save me. So the world that I live in might be better. You say, I don't know, Pastor Dan. It's obvious. Tune your ears up. Those of you who have bowed out, wake up. Why? He's marching up to Jerusalem as the Savior. They are crying out for salvation. They are looking for deliverance. He gets to Jerusalem. Shortly, these people will cry for his crucifixion. But I want you to notice something else. They were involved as much as anyone 
in religious activity up to here. They were up at the temple day after day. The crowds and multitudes continued to carry out the Passover and the special occasions. The leaders of the temple were picky about the smallest little detail that was out of line so that if somebody picked up a stick, they knew it. If somebody didn't wash their hands, they knew it. And they were involved in all kinds of hoopla and religious activities. And their Messiah comes on the scene, marching into them. They could quote to you scripture frontwards and backwards. They knew the scriptures well. But they didn't know him. Say, so how do you know that? Well, before I turn to you the passage in Matthew, would you go with me to Isaiah chapter 1 for a minute? He says this to Israel. Watch. Isaiah chapter 1, just look at verse 2 and 3. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks, sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey, he's marching in on one of those, it's master's manger. But Israel, they don't know me. Does not know. My people do not understand. Go back with me to Matthew. Here he is marching last week. He's marching up. They've seen it all. They are crying, Hosanna. They are crying, son of David. They are crying. This is the one that came in the name of the Lord. Deliver us. And what does he do? Does he march into Jerusalem and throw over the Roman government? No. Does he march into Jerusalem and change the environment and get concerned about what they're eating and concerned about all of that? No. Watch what he does do. Verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overthrew the tables and the money changes and seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it into a robber's den. He marches up to Jerusalem in the midst of all the religious activity. And they think he's going to deliver them from the Romans, and he delivers them from themselves. He marches in, and he addresses everything being done in the name of religion and everything being done in the name of God. It's frightening. How much today is going on around the world in the name of Christianity. And if he were to walk in today, what would he do to Fellowship Bible Church? What would he do in our personal lives? What would he do in the United States of America? March in and be thrilled because people are singing and yelling and screaming, are teaching the word and doing all of this when their hearts are so far from God? I think not. 
I fear he would walk in and deal with us. He wouldn't care about Obamacare. He wouldn't care about the Environmental Protection Agency. He wouldn't care about our retirement programs. He would care about our heart. Are we guilty of coming to church week after week, of reading our Bible every day, crying out to God, looking to him, and our hearts are so far away from him in reality? Is there a lot of religious Christian, quote unquote, activity that's going on that's screaming out, Hosea, and I want to get saved, and you need to be saved, when all we're thinking about is a better life, rather than belonging to God, and he owns us? How many have made false professions of faith because all they want to do is escape hell if there is a place? Or, well, I would like to be in heaven, of course, so I'll save me now. And there's no sense whatsoever of being bought with a price. Missed the whole thing. They missed it. They crowned him. They fulfilled scripture. But he was marching for their sin. And they didn't see it. I wonder. If God were to walk into our personal lives. Our local church. Our United States of America, our missionaries. And he saw all the religious activity that's going on, whether he would really be pleased with it. Or whether while people were crying out his name and saying they were worshiping him, he would walk in and throw over the tables of our heart. the tables of our activity. Would he find us at his feet saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner? I don't see that. I don't see it at the triumphant entry. I don't see it on Palm Sunday. I, don't, I see the people crying out, salvation, deliver me. I don't find in the text People crying out saying, God be merciful to me. It's for me that you're going there. Your march to Jerusalem is because of my wickedness. Oh, wretched man that I am. I don't see men crying out and women and boys and girls today, even when we talk about salvation, and maybe I'm wrong. I don't see many crying out to God, what am I that thou art even mindful of me? God, I need salvation. Cleanse my heart. I don't see many crying out like David. It's against you and you only that I've sinned. Lord, create in me a new heart. Do open heart surgery. Give me a heart transplant. Make me a new creation. Renew a right spirit in me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Oh, I see people saying it to others. Where's your joy? But I don't see too many people saying, my joy is not what it should be. 
I don't see too many people crying out for salvation, but I'm not worthy at all. But let me worship you as the Messiah of God, as the Savior of the world. I don't see these crowds that were crying out saying, Lord, I am just totally yours. I not only put down my cloak as an outward sign because everybody else is, I not only cry out, his is the one who comes in the name of Jehovah, but here's my life. I think all too often people that profess faith sing the song, take my life and let it be when the real intent is take my life and let it be alone. Jesus, I am resting, resting. Period. As opposed to truly trust and obey. Here am I. Send me. Start with me. These people missed it, folks. This is an event that's every year, in my opinion, as, as people come to this Palm Sunday, they rejoice and they leave buildings and some people leave with palms as reminders and, and they rejoice and it's great, he came up to Jerusalem to deliver. And they, like the crowds, they don't even see what it was all about. When we're in Christ, when there's a true profession of faith, we are new creations. The heart has been transplanted. We have been bought with a price. We are no longer our own. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Pick it up in verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. Why? For the gate is wide. The way is broad. It leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. Can you imagine in your mind's eye for one moment Many of those people on that day who witnessed it firsthand, God in the flesh that we would all love to see, who witnessed firsthand and were part of the voices that cried, Hosanna, and find themselves in the wide gate because they were looking for the wrong deliverance, looking for the wrong Messiah. For the gate is small, verse 14, and the way is very narrow that leads to life. And watch this. Don't believe the statistics that you hear every day about how many people became a Christian because if you add it all up, the world is Christian. There's few that find it. You know why there's few that find it? Because there's a lot of people that say a prayer that march forward and they're all looking for salvation for the wrong reason. I'm not judging everybody. There's people that do get saved that way. But the only ones who truly get saved are the ones that are coming to God that says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I come with nothing. All my righteousness is as filthy rags. I take your gift. My life is yours. Notice, beware of false prophets, verse 15, who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Just examine our own lives. Let me do it myself, and you do it yourself. 
What is the fruit that's being produced out of our lives? Don't get fooled. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Not everyone who cries out, Hosanna. Not everyone who says he's coming in the name of the Lord. Not everyone who quotes scripture. Not everyone who attends church. Not everyone who's part of a choral group. Not everyone who serves as an usher. Not everyone who just cries these things out will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who do, does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not watch this prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? That is religious activity. And in your name, watch this, perform miracles, many miracles. Who would not want to do a miracle in this church? I can't say these things. I've never casted out a demon. I've never prophesied. I've never done a miracle. But there's many that have done those things. There's many in Jerusalem who are looking for the deliverer and recognize Christ and coronated him as Christ. And what happened? As he marched in, he, they didn't know him. And he says at the end of verse 23, what? He says, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Where are we, folks? Last passage. Go with me to Matthew 23. Say, I don't know, Pastor Dan. They accepted him. He came in, and the crowd, maybe as a whole, and remember, it's going to be just a couple of days away that they will say, crucify him. Watch this sad scene. Matthew 23. It's not the beginning of the passage. It's the end. 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That's where he's going. Who kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to her, Watch this. How often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks, what a vivid picture under her wings. And you were unwilling. Why? God's way. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were just crying that. He didn't accept it. Why? Their hearts were far from him. Let me ask you. You who profess faith in Christ, is it real? Have you been going along playing religion and have never truly come to Christ with nothing but a wretched person and said, I need that salvation, the salvation of my soul? Not because of heaven, but because of hell. Because I've sinned against you. And you love me to die for my sin. And I believe that Christ is truly the Messiah. If you've never come that way, you haven't come to salvation no matter how long you've been professing. We come with nothing. Don't be fooled by the people crying out for salvation. They cried for it for the wrong reasons. Don't be found in the future, in the passage of Matthew, when you stand before God and you say, but I did this, but I, don't you remember, Lord? And he says, I, I, I never knew you. And if you haven't come to Christ, and you know you haven't come to Christ that way, listen, there is nothing good in you. You come short of the glory of God. And the only way is for you to recognize your wretchedness and to come to God and accept his free gift that he's purchased, the cross of Calvary.
those of us who are truly saved and have come to God that way and, and know we're saved, let's examine our hearts. Are we just involved in routine religious activity? How much of our life does God have practically? He owns us, we know that. But we just trying to squeeze him into our schedule? If you're a true believer, that is going to be one sad day when you stand before God. And you see all of the lost reward. If you're a true believer, and I'm a true believer, we've been bought with a price. We're to glorify God in our body and our spirits. His. We are not our own. Triumphant entry, Palm Sunday. He was the one coming in the name of the Lord. He was the one coming as the deliverer, but not the way they wanted it. And he ended up turning over that religion, and he ended up turning over those activities because, folks, it was all dung. It was all garbage because God knew the heart and the heart hadn't been changed. Might we be people, individually, starting with me, and a church, local church, and throughout professing Christianity, the true Christians get down to business of worshiping God and adoring God for who he really is and our hearts be given to him that he can control us. And might we be ever grateful for that march, for that last week, to the cross of Calvary and the victorious resurrection that's given us a living hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we have nothing to bring. You've been so gracious in sending your son in the first place. I do thank you that before you are in this audience, people who have truly trusted in Christ. But Father, maybe we've gotten careless in our work, in our walk, in our worship. I might pray that you'd help us to humbly come before you and that Father, you might renew a right spirit in us that you might restore to us the joy of our salvation and that we might humbly walk in obedience before you. That, Father, it should not be a task to talk to others about Christ, but truly, if we're saved, we would be stirred up with a joy to tell others. That we shouldn't have to be pulled and pushed to serve, but, Father, that out of a heart for you as we belong to you, help us to be ready. Pray for those who have not yet come to Christ. And even more, Father, I pray for those who have not yet come to Christ but have professed faith in Christ but have truly never come the right way. And I pray, Lord, it's not a magical formula, but that they would humbly come as lost sinners, accept the sacrifice of your Son, come with nothing and receive eternal life by believing on the one that you sent, the Messiah, who died for our sins. And we pray that we would see revival in each one of our hearts and that we'd see the effects as you work through our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.